So I hope you'll forgive the indulgence, but one thing I've been kind of doing as we go through TNG is sharing my mentalities, perspectives, memories, etc. from when I first saw these episodes, you know, back when I was in school. Long, long time ago. Galaxy far away, etc., etc. Now, and I bring that up because there's one thing that I've always remembered the battle for, and it's the fact that the Picard maneuver, well, basically, it had it always bugged me that they treated the end of this episode like it was some serious threat. Like, oh my god, Picard's going to use the Picard maneuver against us. What are we going to do? Oh, no, and, and even as a kid, me and my friends would sit down thinking like like a dozen ways around this dilemma. Going through this with analysis mode on, I came up with a couple of new ones. But we'll get to that later because that's only like the last five minutes of the episode. This is such a weird episode. Like, there's some really good stuff for Picard and Riker in this episode. We And, and I'll talk about that when we get there. But there's no... It's like the episode feels like a typical Threat of the Week episode, but it isn't, because there's no Threat of the Week. Like I mentioned, the only threat is that the, the Stargazer is going to attack the Enterprise, and I'm sorry, Picard Maneuver or no, um, that's a Constellation class, this is a Galaxy class, and this isn't Star Trek Generations, where an old Burrell can take on a frickin' Galaxy, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, Lord knows Season 1 has not been known for its good writing, but come on, never, even as a kid, did I feel any threat to the Enterprise in this one. And I don't now. So, it's this, it's, it's framed as if it's a typical, oh no, we must defeat and figure out what's going on. But we know it's going on almost immediately. Like, it's made really, really, really obvious, even as early as the first commercial break, what's going on. We could figure out this thing, so there's no mystery. There's no mystery as to what's going on, and yet a huge amount of the runtime is spent on the the actors, the, excuse me, the characters, trying to figure out what's going on. Then, in addition to that, the whole thing is is written as if it's this big, you know, oh God, what's going to happen, Picard? No, except none of this is permanent. Like, it's not like he's being permanently rewritten or their their only choice is to kill Picard. There's no, there's no threat. There's no dilemma. There's no mystery. What the hell is there? It's just a weird episode. But anyways, anyways, I also had to break out an old magazine, uh, Star Trek Fact Files. Anyone even have any idea what I'm talking about? I imagine most of you don't. A quick search to Google will verify it, but I'll just go ahead and give it to you. It's a little magazine-lit thing that Paramount did for a while there which was a lot of the, shall we say, continuity and tech team at Star Trek trying to explain some of the dumb things the writers did. I know that sounds horribly cynical, but that really is exactly what it was. It's the same thing they did with the technical manual, which I still have a copy of, actually. It's like, okay, they did this, we need to explain this, even though it contradicts this other thing. Mm. You know, trying to build a setting around writers who weren't thinking about building a setting, basically. Not an enviable job, not something I'd want to do. Anyways, uh, this is actually the second episode directed by Rob Bowman. I mentioned him earlier. You're on attack. Ugh. And I wanted to mention him again. 
because I feel like he does a good job of pulling the characters out of the actor's performance. And this is something that'll be relevant in the future as well, something to watch him for. Also, this is just a little bit of weird trivia, but this was apparently the first episode of TNG to use Steadicam, which is a relatively new tech at the time, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a way to steady a camera on a pulley or if it's being held by a person. And he did this specifically to make the scenes where... Uh, where Picard is having visions of the past, look more alien. Now, I will I will forgive you if you don't notice that because he also uses the Dutch angle on those scenes. And I, I'm sorry. I am one of those... Well, I mean, obviously I'm not a professional director, but, you know, from a directing perspective, I'm one of those people who disagrees with the usage of the Dutch angle basically in general. I think there are very, 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 very rare circumstances where it actually is useful. And I think the typical usage of stuff is weird is not helpful. I, I get the visual shorthand, but when Captain Picard walks out into his quarters and sees ghosts of people taking orders from him, I don't think we need the angled camera to tell us something's wrong, you know? think we can figure that out on our own. So this is the second Ferengi episode. Uh, again, they've been mentioned several times. I've been pointing it out as we go because the evolution of the Ferengi is actually quite fascinating. This is the second of three attempts to make the Ferengi into something significant, some actual threat or relevance or whatever. Now, what's funny about this, the actors and the director were all given notes about how not to portray the Ferengi. Now, I find that fascinating. You know, not, not this is what we'd like from them, just don't do this. So they were left with no real direction in this episode. It's like, okay, we can't do what we did last time, but we have no additional guidance because the only viewpoint for the Ferengi that was being given from up top was the last outpost. You know, right? Right? The whole Grey's dribble thing. So what do we do? And it's most obvious in the scene where the three Ferengi, the first, second, and Daemon himself, come over onto the bridge of the Enterprise D, and they're just like, <sighs> you know, they're just doing this thing right here. Apologies to my MP3 viewers who have no idea what I'm, can't see what I'm doing right now, but yeah, you know, they're just doing that thing, and it's like, <sighs> okay, <laughs> what are you doing, right? Like, what, what the hell are you doing? Um... And and I'm looking at this like, I, I, what? That's that's your next attempt. It really feels like the 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 people, the directors and the actors had no idea what to do with their roles. It was just okay, act menacing but slimy. Okay, I can I can do that. Yeah. Anyways. <clears throat> This is not their last attempt. I, I've heard several people say this was the last hurrah at making the Ferengi uh, the villains. It's actually not. There would be another episode after this, and that will be the last episode. However, this is the moment in which everyone involved officially started rewriting the scripts. Uh, so I actually kind of misreported that. I mentioned earlier that the rest of Season 1, they would be rewriting the word Ferengi into the word Romulan. From now on is when that's going to be a thing. And it will be a recurring thing, and I'll point it out as we go, as they start mentioning Romulan battle groups or Romulan ships. It'll just kind of start showing up out of nowhere, because up till now it's always been the Ferengi. Well, there's the Ferengi might have been involved in this, the Ferengi might want this, the Ferengi ship's showing up, etc., etc. Anyways, 
So, let me just say one other thing really quick. Uh, kudos to Patrick Stewart's acting, as always. The man, it's actually harder than you'd think to phys visually represent a headache. Oh, that reminds me. I wanted to check my mic. I'm sorry. I really hope I, I sound okay right now. I wanted to check something last night. Okay, we're good. We're good. Sorry, I've been having mic issues lately, and I know what it caused it. I just wanted to make sure the fix was still working. Anyways, so it's harder than you'd think to visually represent injury. It's one of the reasons why there's always the shorthand that Hollywood or movies or games tend to use for being sick or being in pain. There's always the, ugh, and there's always, like, big old neck brace or something like that. Or there's the the generic cough. You know what I'm talking about, right? They, uh, uh, doesn't matter what they're sick with, just uh, 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 is how they represent that they're sick, right? So, again, credit to Patrick Stewart. He comes across pretty well as demonstrating what it's like to have a severe headache. I know what it's like to have a severe headache. Anybody who watches my show and, and knows me for a while knows that I actually suffer from regular headaches, and I have infrequent cluster headache problems. And so I know exactly how damn debilitating that can be. When I get a cluster headache, I, I get to the point where I basically can't function. I just need to go lay down and hope that I can drug myself to sleep because I'm in too much pain to relax. Yeah, um, it's pretty much why I keep a supply of NyQuil for emergencies like that. It's, it's you know, every time I have a cluster headache, it's like, ugh. But anyways, I'm just trying to say I understand what it's like, and it totally makes sense to me that someone suffering from a repeating, recurring headache like that would have a problem functioning. So he does a great job of presenting that. Um, there's a scene towards the beginning that I've heard several people make fun of where, you know, Picard's like... I have a headache, and, and Crusher says, a what? Now, most people I've seen who make fun of this scene, and this was done a long time ago, and this was done in a comedic sketch, and I believe Sci-Fi did read of this as well, uh, where they just cut the audio at that point. It's like, a what? To imply that Dr. Crusher doesn't know what a headache is. Of course she does, and she admits this immediately after. It's basically just in shock, and I'm sorry, why would you be suffering a headache? That's such an easily cured thing. We, we Headaches are the kind of things that you can just... Pfft, and fix it because of the advanced technology we have. Oh, and of course, they've also cured the common cold. Keep that in the back of your mind for later, by the way, because that's a line in this episode. Anyways, so, Troy, <laughs> so they call the Ferengi up. They're like, hey, Ferengi. Ferengi like, yeah, what? And then the Ferengi says, hey, we want to go ahead and, you know, deal with the situation and then Picard just cuts off the call now remember this is the second time ever that we have seen the Ferengi on camera that we have had visual communication with the Ferengi right second time so in the middle of it he the last time he did something similar to this as a negotiating tactic this time, he specifically does it basically just to consult with his officers. It's actually really, really rude, the way it comes off. And I just found myself going, huh? We will meet on your ship or my ship. Oh, I guess we lost the call. Oh, he's back. What? But then, then it, that's just like a minor nitpick. That can be excused because he's irritable and has a headache. Then Troy, word for word, senses considerable deception from Diamond Bach, Damon Bach. From a Ferengi. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, you know, the Ferengi weren't established yet. Clearly, well, I 
really hate to rules lawyer this one, but uh, they've already established, you know, with the stuff we've seen up to now in the last outpost, that the Ferengi are immune to the scanning, the empathic things. That is also going to be a recurring trait in the future if we really want to go that way, but Troy can sense considerable deception from Bach. Not any specifics, even though he's literally standing in front of her for some of this, but considerable deception. I sometimes wonder if Troy just makes stuff up so that she doesn't look stupid on cam on, on, on the bridge or something like that. Because really? In fact, what I would have loved to happen is Picard you know, turns to Troy and is like, I want to know what he's sensing. And Troy looks at him and says, he's a Ferengi, dumbass. I can't read his thoughts. And Picard's like, oh, right. Sorry. Sorry, Counselor. <laughs> you know? Uh, anyways, so, then Wesley does a thing. I'm skipping over that because I want to talk about that later, okay? So just, Wesley does a thing. Picard at least calls him out for it. Credit where credit is due. And then, <laughs> and then the Ferengi show up. Did Bach not share his plan with his first officer and his second officer? I mean, obviously he didn't. But he shows up and he's like, hey... So, we're going to give you this information for free. And the other Ferengi react as if that's horrible. Because, you know, profit. All profit-focused, right? Even now, they've already started establishing that character trait. And then, he says, oh, and I'll give you your own ship back as a gift. No charge. And the other the, the other Ferengi, uh, I forget his name, Bytok or something like that, you know, the first officer, freaks out. This is so stupid. This is the kind of thing I would expect in a bad kids show. Okay? You know what I'm talking about, right? When someone acts, you know, you know what I mean, like like hey, what's wrong? And the other person says, "Nothing's wrong. <laughs> I was just um watering the 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 bricks." Yeah. And it's so ridiculously obvious that they're lying and it's so ridiculously obvious that something's up. And then the other person just buys it and says, "Yeah, okay, whatever." Like that, that, that's the level of writing we have at this point here. <laughs> okay. So nobody suspects anything, except maybe Riker. And nobody is, is suspicious at all and says, okay, why don't we have a, a routine scan? Oh, by the way, for some reason, some reason, nothing of the sensors of the Enterprise were capable of picking up this thought orb. Which, by the way, I'm at least willing to, to go that. You know, I've, I've talked before about this concept. Forgive me for segueing. I've talked before about suspension of disbelief and how for me it's like an elasticity thing, right? You push, you push against it and things will push my suspension of disbelief, but they will not break it unless you get to a certain point, right? And that's always going to depend on the individual. Everyone has different things that they're willing to accept that others aren't. In fact, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in the course of ruminating on television shows for the last four and a half years now is that there's things that break my suspension of disbelief that some of you guys are okay with, and vice versa. So it's kind of cool to see the, the variance in what we're willing to accept and what we're not. Getting back to my point, I'm at least willing to bend on the idea that Bach is able to spend all of his fortune on finding a device that can control thoughts and somehow tune it to Picard's brain perfectly. Okay, I, I can, I can kind of buy that. I'm kind of with it. Kind of okay with it. But then I see things like Picard acting oddly, again, <laughs> and 
Let me build up to this point, actually. Let me not discuss this right now. So, continuing with the episode, Bach gets this mind orb, calibrates it, works on Picard's brain. Um, I, I do, speaking of that suspension of disbelief thing, really quick, I could buy that the high-pitched whine from the orb is something that only we hear, because otherwise it's actually really stupid that nobody would notice this incredibly obvious high-pitched whine. Oh, also, uh, Bach is a Ferengi. Now, again, we've already established, even now, that Ferengi are more sensitive to sound than other beings. So, and of course, this will become a major point uh, later in several episodes. El Nog uses that in combat, for God's sakes. So... The idea that this pitch is going and Bach is just completely unaffected by it is nonsensical, in addition to the fact that everyone else should be able to hear that kind of a thing, right? So I could buy that that pitch is just there for us. It, it's, it's a cue in the audience thing. Okay, sure. Then they decide to tow the, the, the stargazer away. This is where my own suspension of disbelief shatters a little bit. And there's another thing later which I'll get into. I know this sounds like a really weird thing to bring up, but they're towing the Stargazer at sub-warp. Now, that makes a degree of sense. Towing at warp... It, towing at warp would be really easy. Towing and entering warp would be insane. The level of stress that would put on both ships would probably shatter both of them. So, you know, okay, I get why you're just towing it at sub-warp, but... Are you sending out a repair crew to repair the warp drives on that ship? Because otherwise you got a long journey at sub-warp speeds. In other words, slower than the speed of light to get from here to there. To anywhere. You could literally be in system and going at sub-light speeds and still take absolutely forever to just leave the system. Because space is big. And so I'm I'm hearing this, and I'm like, okay, clearly, you know, they're going to contact Starfleet. Starfleet's going to send out a repair crew. Nope! Starfleet sends out a tug. I would not want that job. Like, oh my god, there's a spider. I'm sorry. Real quick, real quick. Spider alert! Spider alert. <laughs> uh. Okay. I didn't get it. I'm never going to sleep again. <laughs> I don't like spiders, anybody who... So I'm going to try and talk while I get this spider. So, I mean, could you imagine having the job of having to very slowly... Ah! Jesus Christ, found it! Got it. Could you imagine that job? All right, we want you to tow this ship back at sublight speeds to the nearest airbase. Okay. Hang on. Let me load up every video game ever made for this... God knows how many months or years trip I'm about to make. This is even a thing that comes up in Enterprise. Enterprise, a show which is not exactly that well written, let's just be blunt. Where a lot of the cargo ships spend a really, really, really long time getting from point A to point B at warp. Just slower warp. You know? I mean, come on! I know the Federation is kind of incompetent, but are we really at that level? <sighs> so, so then they're going to tug it back. And then Troy is useless. 
I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I like Deanna Troy as a character when she's used properly, and I think Marita Cernus is, is a fine actress. But a lot of early TNG, and this goes into season two at least, Troy is treated like she's a, a device rather than a character. Like a broken tricorder that only works half the time and only when it needs to add unnecessary information. Like, what's going on? I, and I, I quote word for word, I wish I could say. So she can't sense anything. She can't tell Picard's in pain. She can't read the memories he's going through or the emotions he's feeling. The first time she feels anything concrete is when she feels his anger as he's already in the middle of reliving his memory mind control thing on the Stargazer when they're already at danger. When they've already figured out what's going on. Really? So here's where I mentioned the thing. You know, they have they come up with this uh they come up with this fake log entry thing. This actually confuses me. Like box plan for the most part makes a at least a, a weird twisted sort of sense. But the fake log entry, if anything, only feels like it's just there to to delay them. Like that's that's the best excuse I could come up with. Because no one's going to believe that. It is simply too easy to prove it's faked. There's too many ways. We could probably prove that kind of a thing is faked now. Never mind with the kind of technology that the Federation has in the TNG era. So that is at best a delaying tactic, which, again, doesn't matter because he's... The only reason he's delaying is because he's been slowly ramping it up. We, we are shown that. How he's like, ha, 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 yep, I just want you to be in pain. I just, okay, now it's finally time to get my revenge. I mean, I could buy that in his own twisted mind he was dragging it out in order to make Picard suffer more. Okay, I can buy that, but why the log entry? Anyways, credit where credit is due... Riker and everybody, actually, don't believe for a second that, that it's a legitimate log entry. The only one who even gives credence to the idea that that might be a valid log entry is Data. And that is accurate, because Data has no bias or prejudice on the matter, and should be looking at both as if they are both possibilities. It is, of course, then Data, the, the non, excuse me, the objective one, who is able to then prove that it is fake. So... Nice touch on that one. It's a subtle little thing. I don't even think they did it on purpose, but it is a nice little touch there. So Riker doesn't think it's real. Yay. And then he goes and confronts Kazago. I did write his name down. It's right here. Riker goes and confronts Kazago. Now, I want you to do me a weird favor, if you happen to be one of those people re-watching these episodes with me. Watch the scene where Riker goes into his quarters and starts you know, confronting First Officer Kazago. First Officer to First Officer, right? Now, I want you to close your eyes and just listen to the scene, okay? Now, picture Riker having a beard. The reason I mention this is because this is actually the first time in the series thus far that Riker has acted like Riker. It's not brilliant. It's not the kind of thing that he would eventually become known for. But you can see the beginnings of it, the, the, the whispers of the Riker that would be there. And it's a nice touch, and it's one of the things I mentioned Rob Bowman's uh, directing earlier, the fact that he can pull a performance out of the actors. Because, then we cut to Picard. Now, Picard is in his quarters, and he is... This, this is a, actually a legitimately great scene, I think. Picard is crushed by the deaths on the other ship. 
he's I want to say this as, as accurately as I can, so forgive me for catching my thoughts here. I, I even ranted about this in my head before uh, I started recording. I do that sometimes, kind of prepping what I'm going to say. Picard is the kind of guy who will stew in uncertainty and second-guessing himself after the fact is already done. In the moment, when he's there in the crisis, in the situation, the call needs to be made, he does it. Boom, no question, no hesitation, make this happen, done. And I love that. I love the fact that he has that presentation. I love the fact that he has that pseudo-dichotomy. I love the fact that Picard is what I would call a true officer. Because a true officer cannot hesitate in, in the moment. When seconds matter, sitting back and thinking, well, maybe, is not the right call. Not from a military perspective. However... A good officer will also go back. Once that moment is over, once those seconds are spent, and you have time, they will sit and reflect and wonder, did I do the right thing? And they will try to learn and grow from that. This is the first time we've seen that aspect of Picard, and in similar vein to what I just said, I feel like this is the first scene where we start to see the beginnings of Picard. The Picard we will end up knowing over the course of the next six and a half years. Because... And it's this brilliant thing. He's even he's even talking about this whole thing, and he's second-guessing himself because in his own mind, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Maybe, maybe I, I lost my ship in that action, and yes, it was a desperate situation, but maybe it wasn't exactly what I thought it was. And And what's brilliant about this is he worries about the heat of the moment. He doesn't say it that way. He doesn't use my terminology. But he's, he, he in, you, to use my words, he says, in the heat of the moment... I can't be certain of what I knew, and I might have made a mistake. Remember, this is an action that cost him a court-martial, something that will be brought up later, uh, twice, I believe, as well, and eventually led to him being you know, exonerated and having a wonderful medal and maneuver named after him. But, from Picard's perspective, that's a mark. That's a failure. Lost his ship, which he was the commander for 22 years. 22 years he was in charge of the Stargazer. For a bit of perspective, that's almost... No, that's actually over. Well, it depends on when Generations happens. But it's around three times as long as he was in charge of the Enterprise-D before Generations happens. 22 years, and he lost his ship to something that he wasn't sure about, to a freak attack by a freak alien who wasn't even, he didn't even know it was Ferengi. This is the episode where we find out that the other ship was Ferengi. It was never known. Think about that. And he invented this new brilliant tactic to come up with it. Although, I'll talk about that in a minute. And I love the way he presents this. And I love Stewart's acting of it. And I love how he's talking about this. And of course, the way he talks about this, it's so obvious how torn up he is about it. Because he portrays himself as someone who is, as weird as this may sound, not thinking logically. His own line of logic is, in the heat of the moment, I may, might have made a mistake. But a dispassionate observer, like you or I, can look at this and say, that is not valid, because the only reason you were in the heat of the moment, the only reason you were in that crisis situation, was because you were already viciously attacked. And Picard did make the right call. Crew in danger, unknown threat, boom. Nothing else. Because in that kind of a situation, that is, I'm sorry, the correct call. And he did it. 
But I love that he's second-guessing it. I love that he's torn up about that. Picard strikes me as the kind of guy who wouldn't hesitate to kill an enemy, just like that, if he had to. But is also the kind of person who would want to make absolutely sure that they were the enemy, and doesn't want them to be the enemy. And I love that balance between those two points. Anyways, I'm done, I'm done. Moving on. So then... Then... Picard gets up and walks up and starts acting weird again. He's like, hey, hey, hi, yep, everything's fine, nothing's wrong. I'm going to start giving weird orders and acting weird again. I want to remind you, it's been, I think, two episodes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's been two episodes since the last time this happened. Come on, guys. (laughs) Nope, no one questions it. No one worries about it. In fact, the way Riker acts when when Troy and Crusher come to him is basically with disbelief. There's nothing wrong with the captain. What are you talking about? Oh, come on. Then Picard beams over to the Stargazer. But before I get to that, something I missed. Something I shouldn't say missed. Something I skipped over, and I did it on purpose. And that's Wesley Crusher. Up until what now, Wes has been a little irritating from time to time, but basically just kind of there, right? Wes has two scenes in this episode, and both of them are garbage. And just to really nail this point, Will Wheaton himself hates these scenes. Hated these scenes back when he was doing them as a much younger man. And Will Wheaton himself believes that this is the episode in which fans started hailing, hating Wesley Crusher. I have no defense for these scenes. You know, I've, I've talked in defense of Wesley Crusher before. I have no defense for these scenes. Because the first scene, as he storms onto the bridge from engineering, a little bit of perspective. Here's the Enterprise, here's engineering, here's the bridge. I mean, I know turbulists are fast, but that's still probably a bare minimum of a minute trip. Probably more. Gets onto the bridge and says, Sir, you're about to have a perimeter alert if you check the sector such and such. And then the perimeter alert happens, and oh, it totally worked. Completely showing up everyone on the bridge and acting like a smug jackass the entire time. Now, as I actually mentioned earlier, at least Picard calls him out on this and says, All right. He doesn't say showboating, but that's what Wesley's doing, you know. Next time, message up. If that was an actual risk or danger, you would have just ensured that we would have been caught unawares by it. If you detect something like this, use your damn combat. Call the freaking bridge. Seriously. Then, way towards the end of the episode, Deanna Troy, someone who, at least on paper, is supposed to be very familiar with the workings of the brain, and Beverly Crusher, a, br- a supposedly brilliant medical scientist who apparently can see no signs of anything wrong with his brain as he's suffering severe headaches because that makes sense even though she flat out admits that she tries to hide the pain with pain suppressants but if the pain's there then you should be able to detect something on the anyways so so this supposedly brilliant scientist this supposedly brilliant doctor who knows picard personally and is invested in this situation both of them, oh, and also Data. Data's been in on this, too, as Wheaton himself points out. All of them look at this, and they're like, nah. But Wesley, at a glance, just after glancing at this 
incredibly complicated brain scan chart goes and, and starts working on the sensors and improves them in a way that nobody else had thought of or nobody else had implemented in such that he can start detecting not only things that are farther away, like he does at the beginning of the episode, but things that are more subtle, like the brain beam. And notices that they're both the same beam, and aha, I have solved the problem. Now, all of this, as weird as this may sound, I would still barely be willing to forgive. It's not good. It's not good character development. But I would at least be willing to forgive it, because the earlier thing with him rushing onto the bridge, that's the action of a child. I mean, it is stupid, but it is at least an understandable stupid. He really wanted to be involved in this, and it didn't occur to him to do the smart thing. He is not trained in Starfleet protocols or military procedure or anything like that, so it wouldn't occur to him to do the obvious. And, as Picard points out, he wanted to be here when the Ferengi came aboard. So he would do something stupid like that. Acted smug about it, but at least I can go with that. And him somehow using this scanner in order to detect this thing and somehow putting the pieces together, uh, that's really, really pushing it. But they've already flat out established, unfortunately more than once, that Wesley is this prodigy. So, okay, you're, you're pretty much at the edge of my tolerance level, but I'm willing to go with it. But then, then Deanna and Crusher leave. Troy and Crusher leave. And Wesley says after them, in a irritating tone, You're welcome, ladies. And then he shakes him head and says, Adults. That, that's what pushes the suspension of disbelief into the realm of just, this is just you being a snot. This is what makes Wesley Crusher aggravating. It's not just the fact that he's this super genius. Because we can tolerate super genius characters if they're done well. I know that because we tolerate Spock. Yeah, that's right. Spock is a super genius. He's not a Vulcan. I mean, you know, Vulcans are supposed to be smarter, but that's not why Spock is so smart. Spock is so smart because Spock is that smart. He is a super genius by Vulcan standards. Okay? So we so so don't try to, to excuse it by saying it's his lineage. He is a brilliant man, and we can tolerate that because Leonard Nimoy and good writing and blah blah blah. Sometimes. You know, obviously there have been some flaws in his presentation in the past as well. So it's not the super genius part by itself. The super genius part acts as like a magnifier for the smug beam that comes off of those kind of scenes. And again, Wheaton himself hated that crap. Even then, especially now. Why would you do that as a writer? Why destroy any, any goodwill or any tolerance? Why try to actively make the audience dislike a character? No, I'm dead serious. You remember earlier, I called out the stupid writing when it comes to the Ferengi plot thing, right? And I used the parallel to a badly written kid show, right? Another thing... I've seen a lot of kid shows in the last couple of years taking care of my niece, and I can't help but analyze them as I go. So forgive me for, for speaking from more experience than I ever wanted, but a badly written kid show will also do the thing where they will present a character in such a blatant way that, it's des that, that 
it only makes sense the only reason they're doing that is to affect your perception of them and the i'm better than everyone <laughs> or oh whatever ladies or you're welcome that's the kind of archetype you use in those kids shows to sh tell the audience this is a bad guy or this is someone you're supposed to ridicule and mock you know this is a bully or 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 a snot or stuck up a negative portrayal in other words you do that on purpose to emphasize to the audience this is not someone you're supposed to root for this is the kind of person who the episode should end with egg on their face sometimes literally so why do this with Wesley Crusher was that the intent I'm honestly curious I went digging on this one I have a lot of interviews to pull from, from Wheaton and from uh, the old crew. This was when Maurice Hurley was starting to get involved. Um, Roddenberry himself talked about this a bit. You know, Roddenberry was the big pusher for uh, Wesley being, you know, the Ubermensch. There was a lot of discussion about this, but I've never seen anything as to why they deliberately portray Wesley as this snot. And, and the whole kid's excuse that kind of works earlier doesn't work here because that's an in-character excuse, which I would argue isn't valid because Wesley hasn't been portrayed to be a snot all that much. This is an out-of-character question. I'm asking the writers why the writers wrote a character deliberately to be this way. Why do this? Was this... Does, was there an original intent to turn Wesley into a villain? Or to make him, like, some kind of, you know, ha-ha, I will be the epitome of everything wrong with humanity kind of a thing? With great power comes great doom. I mean, we do have a plot thread about that in Season 1 later on. Was that supposed to be Wesley instead of Riker? I don't know. <sighs> Sorry. Anyways. Then we get to the part of the episode that pisses me off the most. Yeah, seriously. But it's probably because... Well, I'd say it pisses me off about equally as much as the Wesley thing. Because there's, there's two things I'm really big on. And I know... Three, actually. I know a lot of people know these things. It's setting... Really big on setting, which is also a subset of continuity. Characterization, character growth, which is also a subset of continuity. And ships. So, let's talk about the Picard Maneuver. Because the Picard Maneuver makes no damn sense. No, I'm serious. Hear me out. In the moment, in the moment with the Stargazer versus the Ferengi Marauder, at that time, under those dire circumstances, the Picard Maneuver made sense. And it did. Even though there are plenty of ways to excuse how the Ferengi could have gotten around that, I could see, in the heat of the moment, the Ferengi crew or the Ferengi computer not properly calculating the, the, the correct trajectory. The idea here is simple. As the, the computer sensors detect the ship, and the, the tactical officer is locking on to the ship, to fire on the ship, and those sensor readings have not changed, now, there are additional sensor readings as the ship's going to warp, but the, the sensor lock, the targeting lock, on the original Stargazer has not changed. Therefore, they shoot, miss, obviously, because the Stargazer's not there anymore, and then get blown to bits, okay? But that only works under really specific circumstances. Now, I also mentioned earlier that in that Star Trek Fact Files magazine, they threw that explanation out the window. And with good reason, because there's a very obvious counter-argument to what I just said. And I know this because me and my friends Joel and Vincent came up with this when we were kids. 
And the counter-argument is, why didn't the sensors detect the ship entering warp, the, tar the ship you're targeting entering warp, and adjust accordingly? Right? Now, there's only ever been one counter-argument for that, and that's that the sensors can't work at warp speeds. I, I kind of briefly brought this up when it came to where no one has gone before. You know, the idea that the, the sensors have to process information at such a ridiculous rate because of how fast warp drive is, right? But the thing is, we know sensors work at warp drive. I mean, the sensors worked at warp drive in the original series. They were able to detect things at warp, right? Here... In the TNG, we've established many times that the sensors work at warp drive. Now, granted, this was nine years previous, so worse tech, sure. But the I'm not making this up, and you can double-check me on this. The official explanation in the Star Trek fact files that they came up with was that the Ferengi ship had light-speed sensors. The, 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 the magazine even calls out that this is suicidally dangerous and stupid. Because it is. If your sensors can only function at the speed of light, the moment you enter warp, the moment you go faster than the speed of light, your sensors become useless and you are completely blind. Do I even need to explain why that's, that's insane? But that's the official explanation. So when the Ferengi sensors, which only work at the speed of light saw the, sh the ship and saw the ship... Well, basically, it didn't see the ship go into warp until it was too late because warp is faster than speed of light. Thing is, even that doesn't fully explain things unless the range at which these ships are fighting is huge. S light is still pretty fast relative to short range. If you are literally visually able to see your target, you are seeing something that you're seeing within seconds. Of, of 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 the light reaching you. And and seconds is is out is like an outward thing. And yet apparently it took twenty two seconds for this whole maneuver or twenty one seconds, something like that, for this whole maneuver to happen. So either they were really far away, far enough that the light would take time, about twenty one seconds, to travel, which twenty one light seconds is a huge freaking distance, by the way. Or uh it's a dumb explanation. Let's <laughs> just, just call it what it is. Okay, so that's this is just the first part of why this upsets me, okay? Second part, then, uh, you know what, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that last. So l let's rearrange the order of the things I want to complain about here, forgive me. The second part here is that Riker and Data act like this is a big deal, like, oh my god, Picard's going to use the Picard maneuver against us. Oh no... Why is this a threat? Why is this a problem? That's a barely repaired constellation operating on on automated backups. I remind you that Star Trek 3 has already come out at this point in time and established that the super genius, brilliant Scotty was able to rig automated ship functions for, you know, a small crew, more than one person, to be able to run the ship barely not really able to take care of extensive functions like, oh, I don't know, combat, okay? 
So Picard's over there with automated systems on an old ship. Oh, by the way, I haven't actually mentioned this yet, but this was originally supposed to be a Constitution ship. I've never been able to figure out why they changed it from a Constitution class. Uh, it's most obvious to note when right at the beginning where there's a close-up of Geordi's face, and he says, yeah, it's an old Constellation class. But if you watch his mouth, he's saying the old Constitution. He, he makes the ooh no face a lot more clear there. and They just changed it to Constellation for some reason. I don't know. I'm not even a fan of the constellation design. Nacelles should be further out, like like this, rather than like this. But I'm getting off topic. So this is an old constellation piece of crap, right? This is a light cruiser at best. Um, and this little thing, <laughs> with, with barely functional automation whatever, and full complement of torpedoes and whatnot, is somehow supposed to be a threat to a galaxy-class heavy exploration cruiser even with the Picard maneuver, which, by the way, he's probably only going to do once. It's not like you can repeat that. Oh, and you know it's coming, and you know how it works. But Riker and Data are like, oh my god, this is a big threat. What do we do? Even as a kid, I, I was sitting there on my TV going, I'm sorry, what? Why is this a problem? Like I mentioned earlier. Now, I will give some credit. The original effects on the old DVD and the old VHSs made this look really, really stupid. Um, it's like, you see the Stargazer, and then it slowly warps over, and then it slowly moves over, and then they catch another tractor beam, and, it, and it's just dumb. Uh, the new effects do a better job of trying to present visually the Picard maneuver, so I do want to give them credit there. The effects of the old episode, the original episode, did not help at all. So they're talking about how there's no defense against this. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to stress this one more time. Even if you do an alpha strike, there's only so much output, or I should say, excuse me, only so much throughput, as in amount of firepower per time that can be expressed from the constellation to the galaxy, okay? So, even if they do the Picard maneuver, the only benefit is if, is now he is closer to the galaxy, so okay, whatever, and it would throw off the, the targeting sensors of the Enterprise, who is not firing back? So there's no, th that gains him no advantage. It's not like the Picard Maneuver suddenly gives him superpowers and he can go Super Saiyan for five seconds or something. No! It's, it's purely a evasive maneuver to try and get a, a sneak attack in, 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 you know, when it's needed and to do a quick Alpha Strike, which the Galaxy Class could withstand because it's a Galaxy Class. So then what? Okay, now, what, now what's going to happen? Okay, they've, they've hit us, our shields are damaged a bit. Now what? Why is this a threat? Why is this treated like it's this big serious moment? Riker even flat out says, we've got to blow our captain to bits. Um, you're an idiot, Riker. <laughs> that brings me to the third thing, and this is what I moved back earlier that I want to complain about. The obvious answer is to just beam Picard back. Well, wait, I hear you say. They can't beam through the shields. First of all, as much as I hate to bring up something that sci-fi debris, sci debris brings up constantly... It aggravates the hell out of me how Star Trek, in general, is incredibly inconsistent about beaming through the shields. And it's it's aggravating because it's not like a minor nitpick, something in the background where, oh, oh they got the wrong floor deck or whatever. It is a major plot point in many episodes, including this one, by the way. It is a major plot point that you can't beam through the shields. That's a huge deal. I, I mean, God's sakes, there's a... Uh, a Taste of Armageddon, the original series, was an excellent example of an episode where Kent beaming through the shields is a big plot point. 
it's pretty much the entire focus of the threat. And it, 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 it caused the, the antagonization between Ambassador Idiot Face and Scotty, right? So, <laughs> so I know what you're saying. You can't beam through the shields. Um, so later on, Bach is over there. They never noticed him go on sh the ship for some reason. But whatever. They're all asleep at the sensors. Fine. Bach is over there. Turns up the orb, starts the mind control thing, and then beams off the ship. I remind you that at this point in time it has been established that the Stargazer's shields have gone up so they can't just beam Picard back. They even mentioned that. You know, Picard beams over, oh my god, Stargazer's shields are up. So, okay, we can't beam him right back. Then, then Bach beams back. Then at the end of the episode, after they've tractored the Stargazer and Picard destroys the orb, which is a scene that's drawn on way too long, um, he beams back. At no point were the shields lowered. <laughs> you see the problem here? Now, let's be absolutely fair. Let's assume that in the, in the, in the somehow, like, Picard uses his psychic powers, because he's secretly Professor Xavier, to turn off the shields as he walks up to, at the end coda. And let's assume Bach has a super, like, one-only-use transporter that can bring him back through the shields because of specific whatevers. Okay, let's, let's be as fair as possible. Okay. You're on a cruiser. Galaxy class. I hate to keep bringing that up, but you have a lot of weapons that you can adjust how hard they hit. So, hit the Stargazer in non-essential areas, not on the bridge, until you lower their shields. And then, once their shields are lowered, beam Picard back. This is such a basic tactic. In fact, the Borg use this from time to time, for God's sakes. Okay, their shields are down. Come on! <sighs> and then they do this weird coda thing. I've already mentioned this. They did this injustice. They have the they stopped doing the massive, you know, ha 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 coda. And instead they go for a completely different perspective and Picard says something that I feel like the writer was really really trying to make sound deep or or invocative, but instead just comes across as pat. It's like, well, Beam me back. Let's leave the dead and let the past be the past. And that's it. That's the end. And then they tow the Stargazer away for the next several months. <laughs> no, no, that's the Tug's job. My bad. You know what? I was actually really liking this episode, even though it was treating me like an idiot. Even though it did the bad writing thing and all that. Because it had some good character moments and some good directing. The last bit, the whole, oh god, we need to have a crisis in the third act thing, just completely destroyed my opinion of this episode. It's no wonder it resonated with me so so profoundly for all these years, especially when I was very young and wasn't really thinking critically or analytically about these kind of things. Still nowhere near as bad as Justice, or Code of Honor, so at least I can definitively say we are taking our first baby little tentative steps into some good television with... TNG. Thank God for that. Um, now, if I'm not mistaken, this should be, according to my schedule, uh, this should be the last episode that comes out in 2017. So, in that case, I will see you guys next year with more TNG.